All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And a very special episode today. I got our guest, a frequent guest, a good friend of mine, uh, one of the best physicians that I know. This is Dr. David Hanscom, who's a complex spine surgeon out of Seattle. And this is a topic that um, I think is, a, is, is important because we haven't touched on it in past episodes. We've talked about when surgery, we shouldn't be doing surgery, how injections and things for pain are overused. We talked about drugs for pain. But there's always the question is, when do you absolutely need surgery? Or when do you think that you need surgery? And when do you really want to have that deep discussion on whether or not surgery is necessary for you? And there's no better person to talk about the subject than Dr. Hanscom. And Dave, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. thanks, thanks it's always third, a lot of third, fun. Third time here. So this is kind of fun. Yeah, this is great. All right. So so the big question is, and it comes up again, and, and uh, you know, pain is, it can be very scary, and particularly people with back pain. And they see all this news saying, if you don't see your doctor, or you don't have this done, you're going to be paralyzed. You're going to have this, this awful things. So in your opinion, when is surgery appropriate for back pain? Surgery is never appropriate for back pain. Period. Period. Strong yep. statement there. And I, and I love it and I totally agree. But but could you expand on that a little bit more? So it depends. Surgery somehow has been held up as the final answer for almost everything. In other words, if everything else has failed, let's try surgery. And I think because it's such a big intervention, people feel like somehow it has to help. But what's happening now in spine surgery, we're getting technologically better, so we have bigger operations to offer. And what we're doing is bigger operations. So let me jump back clear to 1985, 86, when I started in Seattle in practice. I trained in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been one of the surgeons who's been aggressively on both sides of this fence. So I came out of my spine fellowship with a zeal that I could help anybody with anything surgically. And at that time, a test called a discogram had been put out as a, as a diagnostic test with validity out of Texas. And basically you injected dye into the disc, pressurized the disc. If it was painful, it was considered the source of the patient's pain and we would do a spine fusion. And at the same time, a plate called a Steffi plate came in, came into existence in Seattle. My partner brought that into town. And as a way, we put screws and plates into the spine to obtain a fusion. So we had a much higher chance of obtaining a, fu obtaining a fusion than we historically had. So I was a zealot. I did dozens of spine fusions for back pain. I was able to obtain a solid spine fusion most of the time. There was no data at the time. So from 1985 to 1993, I did dozens and dozens of spine fusions. Then our paper came out in the state of Washington showing that the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain in a worker's comp patient was 15%. And I just stopped. I said, well, I was getting somewhat better than that, but I was pretty focused on rehab at the time. And I'd do this perfect operation, get a solid fusion, and people would still hurt. So then I started asking my partners, well, what's the data? And they go, well, we don't really know. Then in 2006, another paper came out of Stanford by Dr. Kerrigy that you well know, where he did a very beautifully done prospectively controlled study, where randomized study where he took people with very carefully controlled discograms, and he compared those to patients who had what was called a structural problem where the spine was actually unstable, and he found out that if you did a fusion based on just back pain, just on a degenerated disc, the success rate was about 22% a two-year follow-up. If you did a fusion based on 
an unstable spine, the success rate was about 75%, which is good, still not 100%, but better than I would have thought, but, but, but reasonably good. So as long as we have seen that surgery is indicated if you have an identifiable source of pain, in other words, a structural problem with matching symptoms. Back pain is a nonspecific pain. So if, if you have gross instability in just back pain, you might consider surgery, but that's pretty rare. What's happening in spine surgery is that people are still doing fusions for back pain, and the discography is, t is not in favor anymore. People are not doing much discography. So now what they're doing is they're simply taking MRI scans that show disc degeneration and saying, well, that's the source of the pain. Well, as you know, what's ironic right now in spine surgery is that there are many things that we do not know about back pain. But what has been documented in multiple papers is that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. Yet, it's the most common reasons people have fusions done for back pain. It's degenerated disc. So it's also not been connected with arthritis, herniated disc, bulging disc. We know this. This has been documented very clearly that those are not the source of pain. I went to an industry presentation a few weeks ago, and the spinal instrumentation looks spinal instrumentation industry looks at spine fusions as a growth industry. And they're projecting over a million spine fusions done per year by 2020. And it doesn't work. So the data shows that it doesn't work. The data also shows that the disc is not the source of the pain. It is the most common reason we do a fusion for back pain is for disc degeneration is a complete disconnect. In addition, we also know that lack of sleep, depression, anxiety, catastrophizing, poor physical conditioning, et cetera, are all, all pro, poor prognostic factors for outcomes. But another paper out of Baltimore showed that less than 10% of surgeons are actually assessing those variables before they make the decision to do surgery. So there's a long way of saying that we're firing away procedures with no rationale, with predictably poor results. But the worst part of it is, as a spine surgeon, I mean, it's one thing to have a medication that doesn't work without long-term effects. When you surgically fuse the spine, you've now damaged the spine, as you well know. Anyway, I, that was a little bit of a long answer. No, I, I, I think it was a beautiful answer, and, and you hit so many key points that is just astounding to me. I mean, you, you brought up you had data in the, in the late 80s, and yet this stuff continues to persist. Right. And, uh, you know, um, a couple couple points. I'm going to briefly do a little diatribe on, on how we love to talk about evidence and medicine, and then we love to not follow evidence in medicine. Because it's really interesting is that spine data keeps coming up again and again and again, that when you are treating pain with a surgery, or in my case when it was injections, the results are poor. Uh, they're certainly not significant in any way, and there's a lot of what we would call indirect effect going on when people do get better, that often it doesn't matter what the actual procedure is done, whether or not they get better has to do with other variables that have nothing to do with the, the actual injection or surgery itself. But the, but the kicker for me is there are people in the pain realm, both in spine and interventional pain, that know this data, but when, but when you talk to them about it, the answer is, yeah, I know the data, but that's not my patients. As if for some reason they, and I, it, I think there's an ego thing, I certainly think it has, it protects their belief system, it certainly 
means they don't have to challenge those beliefs when it comes to what their practice ends up to. But how did you escape that? Because that is incredibly common when people are like, yeah, I know what the data is, but you know what? Those, those, other, those other surgeons, they're not as good as me. I'm a better surgeon than them, and, and they, they must have not have been doing the surgery correct, or they didn't do this thing that I'm doing correct. And then you know, the follow-up is usually, well, actually, are you tracking your data and following your patients? And they say no. Well, yeah, well, first of all, I mean, what I'm excited about, my patients are getting better without the surgery. In other words, chronic, chronic pain is curable, mm -hmm. as you know. So if we had a cure for heart disease and cancer, we'd be pretty excited about it. Chronic pain actually has a bigger, factor, bigger effect on our society than heart disease and cancer combined, right? So it was considered uncurable by the medical profession. It's actually a curable problem. And it's curable by understanding it's a neurological disease, not structural. Second thing is multiple factors affect it. You have to treat every aspect at the same time. The third part, the patient takes control of their own care. So it's not like we don't have an alternative to surgery. So what I did about five years ago, my nurses were saying, look, so your patients are doing so well with this structured care program. And as you know, I wrote the book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. I say, look, here's the book. Here's a website. I'll see you back in two weeks. And what it does, it takes the variables that affect pain and simply lay them out there for the patient to take charge of their own care. So the research shows thousands of papers, not hundreds, show, again, the data is right there. And my whole thing is let's operationalize data that we already know. So we know sleep makes a difference. That's been documented multiple times. We know that fear, anxiety, depression, and catastrophizing all make a difference because it changes the body's chemistry so you actually feel the pain more, address those, which we do. Then we know physical condition is a factor, so we address that. Medication adjustments are a big deal, so we address that. So by going through what's called a prehab process, we're now having surgical patients cancel the surgery because their pain disappeared. We did not expect that. So first of all, patients without surgical lesions predictably will get better with the tools. Second of all, my first book said, look, if you have a person in chronic pain with a structural surgical problem, do the surgery more aggressively because people in chronic pain don't tolerate the extra stress of a structural problem. That's not true. The data says you, if you operate in the presence of somebody in chronic pain, you already have a fired up nervous system. You can make the pain worse up to 40% of the time. So what happened, so let's say, take the known data and simply address those before surgery because we know if we don't address those first, the surgical outcomes are poor. And indeed, there's a paper out of Baltimore that shows that less than 10% of surgeons are actually addressing stress, anxiety, depression, and these factors before they do surgery with predictably poor outcomes. So the data says do it. And then people say, well, where's your data? I said, look, I'm just using data that's already been proven. So what's happening is I'm now up to almost 100 patients with surgical lesions in the last couple of years. They come in for the preoperative appointment. They have spinal stenosis of canals that are four, five, and six millimeters. The normal spinal canal di diameter is about 15. We start considering surgery at eight or nine millimeters. These people are down to four and five millimeter canals. They have terrible leg pain. They have terrible sciatica. And they come in six or eight weeks later, pain is gone. It is stunning. Absolutely unexpected. So it appears for pain, it actually doesn't matter where the pain starts. You can reroute your neurological system around the pain no matter what's happening without surgery. So surgery is not only not the definitive answer, it's actually the wrong answer most of the time. Yeah, you know, ab absolutely. And, and I, I, I do 
if you guys are listening here, I have several episodes on talking about pain specifically um, because it really comes down to, to understanding that pain, like, like Dr. Hanscom said, is a neurological process. It's created in the brain. And there are multiple different inputs that, that are contributors to that. But the idea that people can just point to a structure and say your pain is oozing out of that structure like pus is absolutely ridiculous and doesn't even fit you know, you know what, what has been known for 50-plus years now, going back to one of the seminal papers on, on gait control, which is actually old information on pain. But even they, Pat Wall and Ron Melzack, didn't say that pain oozes like pus out of a structure. And we treat it like it's a, some like it's an infection, or there's something that we that it that there's these little pain, I don't know, pain pus is the, is the, the term I've been using that somehow oozes out of a bulging disc or it oozes out of a of a spinal canal, and that's simply not true. The only thing that comes from the body is nerve information, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that are important in there. But um, I, I just I want to do some clarifications because we're using some medical speak. I want to make sure that the listeners get this. When you're talking so spinal stenosis, which is in ex is being more diagnosed every year, I think people are looking for it, which is where it's a con your spine has the has the a canal where you have major nerves coming from your brain down and it feeds into your legs and arms and everything else. And with spinal stenosis, that's basically is with a normal age related change that starts to close off. Right. And when you're talking severe spinal stenosis with four, four millimeters, that's less than a third of what the normal space is. And a lot of right. people will say that s severe spinal stenosis, the only thing that can be done is surgery. Right. And, and you're saying those people are coming in with pain, with severe spinal stenosis. But when we get all these other things that contribute to creating and amplifying our pain, when those get better, they are not. They're coming back saying, I don't want surgery anymore. Correct. Their pain, I mean, we just did a follow-up study of three years of people that canceled surgery three years ago. They're fine. Or they may have some pain, but they're not having nearly enough pain to want to undergo surgery. And the other thing, the results of spinal stenosis surgery aren't 90%, like I've been led to believe. It's about 65%. It's not a slam-dunk operation. And like any surgery, there's significant complications. And, it's, and spinal stenosis, by the way, is a bit of a challenging operation because the canal is narrow. Often the so it's like the narrow part of an hourglass is that what you're doing with surgery is that you're widening that narrow part of the hourglass so it's now all the same diameter. So you've turned the hourglass into a tube. And when it works, it does work well most of the time. I think one of the reasons that it doesn't work is a lot of times people are operating in canals that are, that are fairly wide diameter that still have cerebral spinal fluid around the nerve roots which means the nerve roots aren't really being pinched and the surgery is probably not going to work in that situation no matter what you do. But what is the elephant in the room is that the spinal has been there for years and also the pain started three months ago. What I'm finding out over and over and over again is that people all of a sudden had a major life change. Um, a spouse died, kid committed suicide, loss of a job, drug addiction issues, etc., and people have a lot of stress that is horrible. I just had one patient whose grandson shot his father, which was this, which was this guy's son. So he had neck pain, and I said to my fellow, said, I said to my fellow, look, the diagnosis here is in neck pain. This is a horrible stress. I had another woman whose son accident, accidentally backed over her 18-month-old granddaughter and killed her. So that stress, and guess what? The pain flared up about a week afterwards. That bone spur had been there for at least five years. 
And what we're finding now is simply getting people through the situational stress improves the body chemistry. It changes the pain threshold. So it's not that the bone spur isn't contributing to the pain pattern because the pain is there. And it's not that surgery wouldn't work. In other words, if you took away that one bone spur, in other words, you have a structural problem with matching symptoms, the surgery would work. But we also know that if you still do the surgery in the presence of that kind of a stress, that even the perfect structural operation often doesn't work. So again, we, we're doing what's called a prehab process, with it, which I think we've talked about before, that for every patient with elective surgery, we have them do eight to 12 weeks of improving sleep, working on stress, stabilizing medications, getting into physical therapy, understanding chronic pain, and that's when people come in for the preoperative visit, their final visit before surgery, and their pain was gone. And it has been absolutely stunning. Another couple patients canceled the pain last, another couple people, probably one or two patients a week now cancel their surgeries. And, and so what does that do to your practice? It's devastated it. I, I have the same problem you do. I, I know you, yeah, no, it's, it's devastated my surgical practice. I mean, if I honestly, I mean, I do a lot of complex spine surgery, but I'm doing it for, you know, people with severe spinal stenosis in their necks that are partially paralyzed. I do, you know, trauma, tumors, infections. So on call, um, I have a lot of patients that are really needing major spine surgery. So I'm, I'm a complex spine surgeon, so I enjoy doing complex cases. And I don't get to do easy cases anymore because they all just get better on their own. <laughs> so the surgeries I do tend to be higher and higher risk. And, you know, they do well. But, I mean, still, in those situations, they're tough situations. You can only do as much as you can do. But it's been absolutely – and the thing is when people do the pre – I mean, some people go to surgery with a spinal stenosis. And when you do the operation in, presence of a, in the presence of a calm-down nervous system, it's just delightful. I mean, their rehab's better. Post-operative pain is better. Six to 12 months later, they're doing extremely well. Then when their pain flares up, I used to think, well, this is a recurrent problem. It turns out that pain pathways are permanent. And some of the life stress came along, kicked up the pain pathways. And by understanding the whole concept of the, of the neurological nature of pain, the, you're able to calm the patients down because you have the tools in place. So it's just been a delightful experience getting people educated to the nature of chronic pain. And my goal is my goal with the patient with a structural problem is saying, look, my goal is to get you pain-free with or without surgery. And if we have to do surgery, fine. If we don't do surgery, that's fine too. I don't really care. Our goal is simply get, get you to pain-free. But the message is chronic pain is curable, but you have to treat it with a multiple-pronged approach. And, and oftentimes treating things that people don't think contribute to their pain at all, which are often incredibly important. Well, but that's what you know. I just talked about. It's been unbelievably documented that everything we just talked about has a huge impact on surgical outcomes. Huge. Yeah, there was, it was interesting. There's a, um, it's actually from the spine literature, and I use it in a lot of my talks. It was when you're looking at spine fusion. So when we're talking about spine fusion, folks, what we're talking is your, your back has a number of separate bones that are fitted together with a disc and it allows us to twist and bend and allows you a lot of mobility. It's also a, an amazing piece of, of engineering, by the way. We have this... Uh, this cultural ideal that somehow our backs are fragile and that makes no sense. Our backs are actually designed to be extraordinarily strong, but extraordinarily mobile. 
and protecting all those important nerves in there. So they are not weak structures. They're actually extraordinarily strong. But with spine fusion, the idea is that those movement between those segments is possibly uh, uh, where, where you know, your pain is oozing out of like pus. And so what a fusion does is it, it takes those two previously mobile segments and it keeps them from moving. So when we're talking about a quote unquote successful fusion, oftentimes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but the old spinal literature, they didn't were looking at whether the pain got better. They were looking to see those, do those two segments of the, of the vertebral column not move anymore. And that was a, a uh, way to say the surgery was successful, saying that, you know what, we took those two pieces of bone that were previously mobile, and that was what they were supposed to do. And now they are no longer moving at all. And that's a successful fusion. But that's, right. what, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about fusion, in case people are kind of wondering about that. Right. So, so it's ironic. I mean, basically a fusion is to stabilize something that's unstable. In other words, a fusion stabilizes the spine in a very powerful way. So it's like reinforced concrete. The problem is that you now have a stress riser. It's like a rock in, rock in the middle of a stream is that the water flows faster around the rock. So at the top and bottom of a fusion, why the spine tends to break down. So a big part of my practice are dealing with patients that had fusions five or 10 years ago. Now they have broken down. So often the original operation was simply done for back pain without an identifiable source. Surgery didn't work or they're worse. That happens almost all the time. Then now they come in with a broken down spine above the fusion. Now they have a structural problem. And so now they have the chronic pain that's not been addressed. It's, got, it's getting worse over time. And chronic pain, by the way, always gets worse with time and repetition. So then in addition, now they have a structural problem. And so the cascade is really nasty as far as multiple surgeries over five or 10 years. What's become really disturbing the last five years, instead of doing one and two level fusions, the technology has improved. We're able to get a fusion more time than we have in the past. But the fusions are now being done from T10 of the pelvis, from the thoracic 10 down to the pelvis. Those are eight level fusions. There's a complication rate of about 70% that are big complications. Then there's a 30% chance that the spine will actually break down above the fusion, which happens a lot. 30% is a lot. So you've had an operation, first of all, that doesn't seem to help the pain very much or helps the pain for a year or two. Then they come in with the spine literally broken down. Then you have to extend the spine up to a few levels higher, sometimes all the way up to the neck. So you take a relatively normal spine, all of a sudden you have rods from your neck to your pelvis over a matter of five years. And people's lives are destroyed. So this aggressive use of multiple level fusions has become unbelievable. And why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, somehow we know that one and two level fusions didn't work. And somehow if we get like a 20 degree scoliosis, people think, well, that must be the source of the pain. And this is a part, I'm having a hard time quantitating. I'm not sure how to do this. But, I mean, my entire career, I've actually never fused scoliosis for pain. I've only fused scoliosis if somebody's unbalanced and need to be corrected so they can stand up straight. I've never thought scoliosis caused pain. And, indeed, I rehab patient after patient and patient with have scoliosis and back pain. The surgeons tell them, well, the scoliosis is causing your pain. Not true. So I right now I have a girl... 37 years old from Montana. I've been working with her for about 18 months. She's uh, she's fine. She had about a 50-degree curve. Two surgeons wanted to fuse her, and she's fine. 
I have another 18-year-old girl without pain, actually, who had about a 45-degree curve, who simply did not need surgery for any reason, and they wanted to fuse her. I have another lady with a 60-degree curve who was in a wheelchair for 10 years with chronic pain. She wanted me to fix her. She's on about 500 milligrams of oxycodone a day. I said no. So let's get you off medications. We'll prehab you, and then I'll consider doing the surgery in six months. She came back six months later. She'd been in a wheelchair for 10 years. So she wasn't really cooperating with treatment. So I walked in the room, sort of dreading the appointment. There was no wheelchair, no pain, no pain medication. She was fine. And she still had the scoliosis. And for her, she admitted she'd been sitting in her house for literally 10 years every day, obsessing about her divorce, about her slip and fall accident, about her worker's comp injury, and was angry as could be. And as she went through the process of calming down her nervous system and letting go, um, pain disappeared. I still see her. Four years later, still see her in the hospital, off and on for different reasons. And she's doing fine. So... I just see people endlessly come in with recommendations for scoliosis surgery and pain relief, and it doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence that a fusion helps pain. There's plenty of evidence show, shows if you treat pain as a neurological issue, you can treat it very nicely without doing any surgery at all. But anyway, right now we have better technology, and so we're throwing bigger operations at people. The way surgeons are being trained right now is that somehow the bigger the better and so we're hurting people at a very high level right now. It's much worse than it used to be. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, and this is not just spine surgery, but I think it's endemic in healthcare. Is is we do a lot of we could do this. We have this technology, so we could do this surgery. We could do this highly invasive thing, and there's not enough of what we should be doing. Uh, right. How that has gotten neglected in this whole process. So. Um, a couple key things I know you don't have a lot of time today, but one I wanted to, to put on is um, what are your opinions? Something that really upsets me is surgery is oftentimes framed in such a way as go out and fail all the stuff. And then if it, if your pain persists, then we'll do surgery as a quote unquote last resort, which seems right. absolutely ridiculous to me because right. if there was an indication to do it, it would be done. Right. Uh, wait until everything, you know, it put an expectation of failure into these patients to go out and try this stuff and then do something that has no proven benefit on them. It just seems absolutely absurd. You're right. No argument. Absolutely right. And then the, the last part here. So we, we, we kind of led this off with um, when surgery is appropriate. So, folks, we, we know that surgery is not appropriate for pain. But what has come up again and again in this particular discussion here um, are, are when you do surgery and you're doing it, the it, it isn't for the pain, but it is things like, and, and I'm going to throw out these things, Dave, and please add in as much as you want because I'm, you have the expertise here, is if you have an infection in your spine, so you have pus along the spinal canal or something deep in there, then it makes sense that we need to go in with surgery and decompress and take that pus out so that the person can heal. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, there's not much choice most of the There's <laughs> not much choice there, so we have to do that. Yeah. And the second one would be if you have to do a decompression because, say, they have um, a tumor or there's some sort of cancerous process in there, same thing. Right. And then the other one would be you, we touched on instability. So in, in, in situations where now there may be abnormal movement, maybe some of the bones have had some fractures over time, which can occur, and now there's movement more than they're supposed to be, and you're getting symptoms like uh, weakness in your legs, and we can see that, that, that those segments are 
moving too far and too much and compressing those nerves and so causing weakness or, or difficulties with your bowel or bladder, that would make sense that surgery should be done for that. Well, let's be really clear on that for a second because what happens, people will have three and four millimeters, three and four millimeters of instability and have back pain. And so a lot of surgeons will still perform infusion for back pain with three or four millimeters of movement, saying your spine's unstable. So first of all, those people are rehab all day long. So just having three or four millimeters of motion in your back does not necessarily mean that you need surgery, number one, but it's often recommended to be done. So if you have leg symptoms and movement, even still, those are people that are, that are getting better without surgery at all, you know, through the rehab. So when you do the operation, if you do the prehab first, get people ready to go, they still have the leg pain, then you go ahead and decompress the spinal canal, get rid of the stenosis, and you stabilize it, that makes sense. But if it's just back pain without stenosis, no leg pain, I still don't recommend surgery for just, quote, instability. Mm -hmm. Now, and thanks for clarifying that, because instability without the, again, the weak, the severe weak bowel or bladder problems. Right. So... What I'm kind of hearing then is if you and – and I feel sort of dangerous because I know, unfortunately, there are some surgeons that would walk into the room within, with people. Not, and they're the exception, not the rule, and would say we, we need to operate around the way. But if the surgeon says, well, we could do this operation, but you don't need it right now. And if you're that patient, really the default in a lot of things is you don't need that operation. Because if you had – pus or an abscess in your spine they would be saying we have to do this operation and if you don't want it i want you to sign these papers saying you don't want this operation or right. cancer in your spine they're say we have to do this operation and if you don't want this operation now i want you to sign these papers saying that you don't want this operation and then right. the, the, so that just leaves that really that uh, the, or if, if you're having problems peeing or going to the bathroom and and you can't move your legs they're going to do the same thing we have right. to do this operation and right. if you're not going to do it sign these papers and if right. it's not those situations, really the default is don't do surgery. Right. Right. Yeah. No, this elect I mean, what's also interesting is that we have again this idea that surgery is a definitive answer. And it's only an answer is if you find exactly what the problem is. With an, in other words, you have to have something you can see. So that's what's it's I don't know exactly how we get down this rabbit hole so far, but you have back pain. You have disc degeneration. We know discs don't cause back pain. And we're throwing these massively risky operations at just what? There's nothing there. There's nothing to operate on. One of the worst cases I saw recently was, um, I'll try to keep it very um, vague as far as I don't, I don't want to do, worry about patient identity issues, but um, I had a person, I won't tell you the sex, who is you know older, very active sports person, who had two months of thoracic pain after lifting weights. That's, that's mid-back pain. For thoracic pain, yeah. right. So, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You can be, you know, just high school physiologist says you strain your muscles, right? Okay, so, so it doesn't matter. So that's it. The spine was otherwise completely normal. That's it. No deformity. This one, even if this person had had bone spurs, I was still considered that normal, considered that normal. This person didn't even have bone spurs. So, so guess no, what no happened? No wrinkles in the spine. Nothing. So guess what happened? Very youthful looking. What happened? Just take a guess. Uh, well, they, they sung the wrong surgeon. <laughs> well, it wasn't done, wasn't done in Seattle. It's done in California. Mm-hmm. 
So they fused this person from the neck to the pelvis and took a normally active person and this person ended up being housebound for the last four or five years, high dose narcotics, and they lost their mind. They've gone psychotic. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Completely normal spine. And um, not to, not to, because I, you, I know you do a lot of, of salvage operations, or like you said, where you're having people who've had multiple back surgeries previously and now have problems with walking instability and their spines are breaking down, and those are the, the um, very difficult population that you do do surgery on. Uh, how many of those patients do you think had normal spines before those first operations, at least if you can see the imaging? Most. Most. Yep. Unbelievable. Well... Um, I know we're running out of time here, and I hate to. Uh, this is <laughs> such a downer note. So actually, if I, if you don't mind, what rec what recommendations? I don't want to scare everybody here. What would your recommendations be as a complex spine surgeon for someone who has back pain? What would be the first thing that you would do, or how would you start off in your own process of healing? So first of all, I would recommend people do at least as much research on their doctor and spine as they do buying a car. Um, right now, I think the medical profession in general, not necessarily just spine surgery, but, you know, cardiology, urology, I mean, the medicine has gone into a procedure-based mode. Second of all, if you're under stress, don't do anything. Deal with the stress first. You got to do that. Just find out whether you're high risk or low risk. Understand that the risk that when you're under stress, it changes your body, it changes your body's chemistry, it changes the pain threshold. So... First of all, when you're under stress, you can't make clear decisions anyway. Second of all, if you decide to jump into an operation, regardless of the stress, why you really have compromised your outcome, because the data shows very clearly that your success rate is probably less than half as good as if you're not under stress, at least that. So you have to take charge of your own care. Um, third of all, you know, there's, I know you have used my book a lot that I do lay all this out in my book about all the factors that affect pain. So I would consider, so with this prehab process, by the way, to make it really simple, I give patients my book, give them the website and 90% of the patients that get completely better with without surgery, do it on their own. So you don't need a big pain clinic to do this. They're all very self-directed processes. The website is backincontrol.com. The book is Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And I'm not trying to hold my book out there as the end all. It's not. It's just a framework. It's actually a primary care book. It's not a pain book. It talks about the sleep, the stress, physical conditioning, diet, nutrition, the things that we all know affect everything. So the book's really a primary care wellness book more than a pain book. And get those variables solved before you make any major decisions. So right now, surgery is not a last resort. If you don't have a structural problem, it's not a resort at all. It's not even, not even an option. And somehow there's this blind faith that, well, the surgeon says I need surgery, I'm going to need surgery. That just isn't true anymore. And you already know that. I'm preaching to the choir here. But um, the other thing is, I mean, I talk to my fellows. I mean, if you go to a spine surgeon in, in this country, I mean, Kevin, what would you estimate if a patient in your experience goes to a spine surgeon for a consultation what do you think the chances are that the surgeons are going to recommend surgery? Uh, well, locally here, um, for a time, we had what I would call low rates of spine surgery. 
and for them it was 50 50. i'm sorry there's a 50 percent chance they would recommend surgery yeah okay 50 percent of the time which i thought was from from other areas uh, that i've been in uh, was kind of low still still high but uh a lot lower than some areas which i think bend oregon had really high rates and i know eugene oregon has very high rates so when i was in medical school generally the general flavor was that maybe 10 percent of people that maybe 10 percent of people needed spine surgery that was sort of the general flavor and my just gut feeling i have no idea how to measure this but maybe between 30 to 70 percent of patients that go to see a surgeon would recommend having surgical intervention we just looked at my surgical conversion rate. It was 4.6%. And these patients are getting better. It's not like I'm saying, you know, don't get better. I mean, we're putting together. Again, the program is about 90% self-directed. But I do have, you know, people in town, Joe Conico and David Cassius, as you know, have been extraordinarily helpful um, in helping these people get better. And, you, you know, it helps to have a quarterback. And, of course, you have some nice resources down there in your area with people understand chronic pain really well. But yeah, chronic pain is a solvable problem if you understand the nature of the problem. And it turns out that when you have a neurological problem, in other words, memorized embedded pain pathways, that you cannot treat a neurological problem surgically. It doesn't work. And it, and it can't work, and it doesn't work. So I'm excited about it. You know, I'm excited to see people get better with such minimal interventions. Um, it's becoming increasingly frustrating for me to watch people have surgery they don't need when the solution is so simple. So in an odd way, the whole process has become harder, for, harder and harder for me to watch. And that's, of course, what drives you, you and me to go at this so hard because we know it's possible and we're seeing what's happening. And we're actually, with the business of medicine being so efficient, we're really efficiently hurting our population, as you well know. Absolutely. So on, on, on another podcast, by the way, I'd like to switch gears for a second. Um, it's become quite apparent the last six months that there's a massive role of the family solving chronic pain. And if you get a chance to look at stage three, step two on my website, there's a whole role of family issues. And the family is probably one of the most powerful ways of keep, keeping people in chronic pain, but it can also be one of the most powerful ways of pulling people out of chronic pain. So it's been a remarkable set of tools evolving over the last six to 12 months that have made a huge, huge difference in people's pain. And the family dynamics are a huge, huge issue on this. Absolutely. And uh, it, it, that's, I'm glad we're ending on that because that presents future topics. Maybe we'll have number four on our podcast. We'll just have to start doing a series of things. Yeah, I'm happy to talk. Is, that is not something that's been, that been talked about is extraordinarily important. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I would love to do an episode on that in the future as well. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. It's been very exciting for me to watch this happen the last six months. But uh, anyway, I'm, you know, I'm excited about your work and our work and what we're trying to do. And more, we're finally hit, hitting a bit of a tipping point where a fair number of non-surgeons are saying, okay, well, this is certainly not working surgically and, and looking at alternatives. And my sense also is the general public is getting increasingly frustrated with the lack of success with spine surgery. And the blind faith in spine surgeons right now is simply not warranted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, that's Dr. David Hanscom again. He's a complex mind surgeon out of Seattle, Washington. His, back, his book is Back in Control, which I highly recommend, along with the website backincontrol.com. Um, David, anything else that you want to add before we end? No, I, you know, there's lots of issues here. I don't want to make any of this sound simplistic. So I'd encourage you, again, do your research, take full control and responsibility of your care, 
And generally, again, I just want to leave a very positive message. Chronic pain is incredibly solvable. Absolutely. And, and uh, thanks for ending on that because we've talked about some really dark stuff. And if you're hearing this wrong, you could think, well, there's no options for me. And actually, folks, is when you, act, when you understand pain, we're not taking away an option. We're saying you don't don't do surgery. What we're saying is surgery is not appropriate, but there are a host of options that you can do. I highly recommend you go to backandcontrol.com where you can see a lot of the process that Dr. Hansom has, has made very structured for you. These open up options that oftentimes have not been addressed appropriately. You can get better. Your life can improve. You can, you, it, it, this is, it, it truly is. It's a wonderful thing when people engage with these things. So, uh, David, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank yeah. you so much for on the show. And everybody else out there, stay well. Bye.